0: Nothing helps me wake up more than when there's, like, birds chirping, the sky is lit up.
1: I love how you're thinking of it from such a positive angle. And I'm like, and in my mind, I was like, nothing fucking wakes me up like some motherfucking sunlight in your eyes. So fucking annoying. (laughs) Welcome back to episode eleven.
0: Did you miss us? Cause I know you did.
1: Um, Today we did something a little different. We didn't pick up our food and bring it home and try it.
0: No, we went to this vegan playground. It's called, well, it's called the vegan Vegan playground. (laughs) But it's basically at this brewery in downtown LA. And it has a bunch of food trucks and vendors that come by. And they're all vegan. And it's just like a huge food fair. And we saw that and we're like, that's right up our alley. So we just fucking hopped in the car.
1: Well, shout out to Kay. She's the one that
0: told (laughs) us. Our original plan was that we were going to go there and we were just going to record our opinions about each thing that we were trying, like on site, but it was so freaking loud. I don't know why we didn't think that it would be loud. <laughs> like, we're fucking naive for that. Um, they had like a whole DJ and everything and it going was crowded.
1: on. <laughs> so it, it is a bar, so they have like an ambiance. That's so a brewery. They, a brewery, yeah. So they have like an ambiance, they have beer and um, i know that they were playing the dodger game when we went so yeah, it was, was kind of crazy
0: cool. packed yeah. so we were like okay well that idea is not going to happen so we just decided to take a bunch of photos for you and we thought we would just jump on here and just kind of give you guys a review and let you know what we tried and our thoughts so we tried three different places and sadly two of them were not it eh. wah, wah, mm. wah, wah. <laughs>
1: One of them was pretty good. So we're just going to go from suckiest to the bestest. So the first one we have is um, vegan as fuck food truck or vegan AF food truck. And Arguably
0: the worst one we had.
1: Literally the Honestly worst Honestly, though, one. I
0: think it was what we ordered. Um,
1: I don't know. cause So we got the big Philly loaded fries, and it's all basically a bucket of fries.
0: Giant ass bucket of fries.
1: With vegan as fuck seasoning, plant protein, mild peppers, and secret sauce it sounds so good but it is so bad dude
0: this secret sauce was not
1: it i literally not had an undercooked potato you guys like <laughs> the fries tasted like undercooked potato. like they hadn't hit puberty yet type of potato <laughs> i was so over it <laughs> the next place we had was debbie's donuts and it was all gluten-free
0: no all vegan
1: oh yeah why did i say that i don't know that's weird Anyways, the next place we had was Debbie's Donuts, and that was also all vegan. We got a dozen donuts.
0: We got, like, six. We got half a dozen. dozen Um, But the best – so they were okay. Some of them were okay. Some of them were pretty average. Nothing too spectacular. But there's this one flavor that I got that I think is really worth trying if you live in the South Bay area because I overheard him saying that he, like – Has his bakery or donut shop in Long Beach. Um, And it was the espresso whipped cream donut. That thing was fucking amazing. And I don't normally like donuts with like filling inside of it, but I would eat that. Like I would eat three of those in one sitting.
1: Oh, I didn't know yours had filling in it. So, I was going to say mine was very doughy and dry, but I feel like because yours had filling in it, that's probably why it tasted a lot better. I'll get that one next time.
0: Honestly, I think it was just their chocolate. Because I I got the one that I got that had chocolate in it, I didn't like it, but the ones I didn't have chocolate, I loved. Uh, (laughs) Oh, and
1: all the ones I got had chocolate. She literally
0: got only chocolate donuts.
1: (laughs) I can't help it. I like chocolate. (laughs) Chocolate is my life.
0: And for the real motherfucking MVP of the night the real motherfucking MVP. It's this cute little vegan place called Avocado Mama. Mm. It's all vegan mac and cheese, guys. Oh my god. I I need like three orders of this next time I go because this was amazing. It was literally like a party in my mouth. It was so good. I got the buffalo cauliflower mac and cheese. 10 out of 10. Everyone try that one. And then I got the OG
1: mac and cheese, which is the plain and simple. <laughs> Is anybody surprised
0: they know that? No. It's funny that we have like a food. We do like a food segment in every podcast, and you get the most basic, basic ass, ass shit. shit: cheese pizza, <laughs> regular mac and cheese. I kid you not guys, we were at that food truck to get the fries and she was literally, I told Jenks, I was like, you get to choose the fries for us. And I literally looked her dead in the eye and I said, do not pick the basic ass fries for $5. Do not. And
1: I, that, those are the ones I wanted. It wasn't even about the money. It was definitely just like, that's not, that sounds good.
0: Literally the basic fries, just fries with no seasoning, no <laughs> topping, nothing.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm going to work on that for you guys next time. I promise. <laughs> But yeah, that place was fire. I would definitely go back to Avocado Mama.
0: Yeah, we got to find out where they're at, like where Mm -hmm. their storefront's at, so we can hit them up. Definitely.
1: But I think everyone should try out um, the Vegan Playground. I know we'll be back trying out all the different places that are there. Um, If you
0: live in LA, it's currently held at Boomtown Brewery on Wednesdays, mm -hmm. and then it's in South Bay on Mondays, so two days. Yeah. Overall, I would
1: say... I give the vegan playground ambiance everything like an eight out of a 10.
0: I think I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say like a seven and a half. Okay. I need to try other things and see what I like first. Okay. But I like the ambiance for sure. I like the vibes and everything. It was really chill. We made it to the double digits, baby. And following our spooky theme today, we're gonna talk about a very cult classic. Mm. A horror movie slash book slash actual murder slash potentially actual haunting. I don't know, (laughs) but we'll talk about it because today we're talking about the Amityville Horror House yes, and the murders that gave this house the widely known reputation that we know today. Mm -hmm. And we're also going to talk about the paranormal stuff that came after the murders. So it's supposed to be pretty good. It's a good episode. Um, And I I love it because it's a very controversial case and a controversial story itself, you know, because we don't really understand what happened in the murders. You know, it's not, like, hard evidence. Yeah, there's a lot of factors in this case that make you... that leave a lot of
1: question marks and um, leave things up to the imagination, and
0: that's kind of how, like, it all started in a way. Which is funny because anything with murders and you know any investigation is all about the fucking facts yeah <laughs> but and and then the hauntings that came after that that caused that huge stereo with the movies and mm-hmm. created this huge empire in the horror community also is possibly a hoax or you know perceived as a hoax and there's people that are on both sides of it so it's a very controversial case it's a very controversial situation and we brought all the fucking details for you yeah So, you know, I want to hear what you guys think as well because I have my opinions. Yeah, there's, we're going to throw a lot of what ifs at you.
1: But it all starts back in 1974 in Amityville, New York on November 13th with the DeFeo family murder.
0: It's so funny because, like, no one else knows what Amity. No one cares about Amityville. No one knew Amityville even existed no. until this. And now that's all the town's known for. Like, I, mm. if anyone was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go see my cousin in Amityville, New York. I'm going to be like, oh, do they live by the murder house? Yeah. Have you been there? It's funny because... <laughs> it's funny because that, like, f- what you just said, the
1: fact that, like, it's such a small town and, like, it's not really known for anything except for horror
0: played a factor in to the murder right it was a higher income community it wasn't like a creepy area that's why it was such a sleepy town because there was because there's nothing any there was never anything happening there it was yeah. just such a normal it was a vacation s- home oh it was a vacation area. yeah so
1: like i when i was doing my research a couple articles said that people would vacation there so like it kind of Well, I'll get into it later with all the police. Now their
0: tourists are there for different reasons. Yeah, now
1: the (laughs) tourists are there for different reasons. But back then it was so different. The DeFeo family was a family of seven who moved to Amityville from Brooklyn um, to the famous house, 112 Ocean Avenue. Ronald DeFeo Sr. worked as a service manager at his wife, Louise's family, so her, so his wife's family owned a car dealership in Brooklyn, so that's where he worked. And then their kids, there was two daughters and three sons. And they were all between the age of 23 to 9. And so the story kind of kicks off on November 13, 1974, when the oldest son, Ronald DeFeo Jr., at the time 23 years old, Bursts into a door of a bar, basically saying, telling anyone who would listen, you have to help me, I think my mother and father are shot. And a handful of people, like, obviously, like, turned their attention to him and um, end up going to his house to inspect the scene. Which is also odd, because he didn't call 911 first, he fucking went to a bar and shouted it. And so someone from the, someone on the scene who had went from the bar to the house calls um, the police and says everyone in the house is shot. So the police get there, but the next morning, New York Times printed a description of the gruesome scene, which was six members shot, mom, dad, two brothers, and two sisters. So Ronald DeFeo Jr., the oldest son, was the only surviving one of his family. And the weirdest thing is that they were all in bed, shot in the back of the head, back or neck, and in pajamas. In most of like the crime scene photos, every single room looked normal except for the bedrooms. Each of the bedrooms had a dead DeFeo family member in it face down with blood stains covering their blankets and sheets. The officer on the site also said that they did a really neat job because the door was unlocked, like there was no breaking and entering. Whoever committed this murder had to have
0: easy access to the house or the family trusted. And there was no sign of struggle either, right? No, there was no sign of struggle at all. And you would think there would be if, like, there's people getting shot up in the house. Like, how did no one wake up? Exactly. How did no one, like, try to fight him off or anything like that? Exactly.
1: And that plays, like, a huge role in the future. Police didn't suspect Ron at first, which is absolutely insane to me. And they brought him in for questioning. Ron basically tells the police that he suspects it's um, notorious mafia hitman, Luis Fellini, which is not completely far-fetched because their family was tied to, um, like, a crime family, like a mob family. His uncle Peter specifically was a prominent member of, like, the genovese crime family oh wow yeah he said that uh, some tea he said that fellini lived with them and helped ron's dad carve out a space in the basement to stash cash and gems he was very eager to provide like unnecessary details so he would say things like one time he set fire to his father's boat for insurance money and then he even told the police that he like would do drugs and like was addicted
0: to alcohol and during this time he was on probation mm. and then the police were stupid. so maybe that's why he cooperated because he knew like if i don't tell them they're gonna find out and then it's gonna make me look even worse like yeah. that's probably i mean that's what like as a lawyer i would advise my person to say that especially like, if you did it yeah but it's you know just, like, that
1: now based off of like the information you have access to yeah. back in the 70s you're not gonna fucking know being on drugs well if he's on probation then they know it's gonna yeah. be a record and so the police were like okay you clearly didn't commit the murder you already told us who did it and right now you're high as a motherfucking kite so why don't you just fucking sleep it off and so police are at the scene of the crime and they identify that the type of weapon used for the killings was a 35 marlin rifle And then they find the box of the brand new Marlin rifle in Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s bedroom. And so back at the station, they're like, well, he obviously motherfucking lied. And so they take him back into questioning, but this time as a suspect. And DeFeo broke down very quickly under the pressure and he began to alter his story to say that Fellini and some guy ended up waking him up at 3 a.m they led him through the house and forced him to shoot each of his family members which the police didn't believe again and he then ended up just telling him just like kind of word vomiting in a way and then he started telling them like oh yeah it, went, it all went so fast once I started it all went so fast and he like basically confessed to killing his family and he was arrested. And so on October fourteenth, nineteen seventy five, his trial began. And in that moment, because they had a confession already, there was no doubt that he committed the crime, but they centered the entire case around his mental state. So he basically pleaded insanity and in order to plead insanity insanity you have to be able to prove there was a loss of reasoning power. So basically being able to know um, from right and wrong. The lawyer said he was led to sanity by his abusive father and bizarre family life, which later Ron's uncle testified um, and said that Ron Sr. had been abusive and particularly towards Ron Jr. So when Ron was two years old, um, he did something that bothered his dad and so the uncle is telling the jury this, that when Ron was two years old, he did something that bothered his dad and the dad pushed him into the wall and like Ron ended up banging his shoulder and hurting himself um, wow. And he was very bipolar Like he could be loving one minute And hate him the next mm. And on top of that Ron was also bullied in school About his weight So he was Aww. overweight Yeah, And he didn't lose the weight until his teenage years When he became addicted to drugs Oh I was gonna say that went. sounds like
0: me But then he said addicted to drugs <laughs> mine. Yeah not <laughs> the same but not the same <laughs> <laughs> Mine was just through growth I'm <laughs> we <were> taller and <laughs> lost my weight
1: um, he got addicted to drugs, which then later, like, which went on into his uh, adult years and became the reason as to why he's on probation What now. kind of drugs were they? Like, was it hard drugs? Or was it was hard it drugs, yeah. Oh, it was like everything. Crack? I don't think it was crack. I think it was... Doesn't matter. The jury had very little sympathy for him because during his statement under oath, um, Ron would say things like, he killed his family all in self-defense as far as they were concerned. If he didn't kill his family, they were going to kill him. Which also supported the fact that he would claim that something possessed him and he was hearing voices that led him to kill his family. And then he said that there was it was self-defense and there was nothing wrong with it. And he also said that when there is a gun in his hand, there's no doubt in his mind who he is. He is God. He's literally saying these things under oath in front of the jury. So, like, they have no sympathy for him. And he kept saying during the trial that the murders felt very good. So, officially, on Friday, November 21st, 1975, DeFeo was found guilty of six counts of second-degree murder, and two weeks later, he was sentenced to six terms of 25 years to life in prison. But... These are the things that kind of, like, don't really sit well with the public. DeFeo shot six people sleeping in four separate rooms with a rifle, and none of them woke up. None of, nobody heard the gun blast. Everyone was shot in bed, but there was blood splatter on the floor and dresser.
0: Weird. Right? So it's like their bodies were like placed on the bed like that. Exactly.
1: And so autopsy reports claim that each family member was shot lying face down in the bed, how the police originally found them. None of them put up a fight, like we mentioned earlier, or attempted to flee the scene, which means, again, they didn't wake up from the damn shot. And a Marlin 35 which is the rifle that they use, can be heard from a mile away. It's literally equivalent to being as loud as a firework or a jet engine. Wow. Yeah. And there was no silencer used, which is also crazy to me. And so, like, other people have argued, like, what if the um, family was drugged? And That's exactly
0: what I was thinking. Like, what if they were passed out because they like took something
1: yeah so they did a full toxicology report on the blood in every organ they removed from the body and everything turned up zero
0: wow
1: um they also think that he didn't do this alone because the gun is so loud because of the fact that the gun is so loud it they said quote it would have wakened the dead which is super fucking ironic (laughs) and so great choice of words right (laughs) So DeFeo's mental health was a reasoning for all the different versions of his story. So no one was surprised that his storyline was inconsistent, especially if he's on drugs. Like exactly,
0: you exactly. don't know what his reality, especially hard drugs. It's not like he's drunk or no. like he anything. was. I mean, he was, but like
1: mixed with hard drugs. Yeah, yeah, like
0: his sense of reality was probably altered from many years ever since he started taking those drugs. Yeah, totally.
1: Um, But one storyline that was weaved into all these different fucking versions stayed consistent, and it was that his sister Dawn helped him carry out the murders in some way. So one year after his sentence, DeFeo gave a news outlet a two-hour interview. The news outlet was called Newsday. In this interview, he basically claims that his mother and sister also played a part in the killings, And this is the first time he's openly claimed anyone else was in the murder. And him claiming this basically conflicts with physical evidence from the crime scene. So what he says happened is that Don and the dad had a series of arguments and basically Don shot the father first. Their mom got so angry and became so distraught that she shot Don
0: and their three children then shot herself with a rifle. And they magically flew into their beds, went under the covers, face down. Literally. And went to sleep for the rest of their lives.
1: Right? <laughs> and Ron walked in and found the family dead and got so angry, he shot her his already dead mother in the head one more time. Which is so weird to me because Ron never said this during the trial. And this is huge information to, that might have like led him to possibly not be in jail if he had an accomplice and like whatever, it, or if he shot already
0: dead people. So, did he ever go to jail with like um insanity or like did they just like convict him fully guilty of the murder? They convicted him fully guilty of the murder. Cause I'm thinking like with all these like different variations of the story, it just seems like he clearly was not in the right state of mind. Especially yeah, but they have a confession. He- Yeah, but I'm saying, like, it's beyond... Like, I feel like, especially back then, you know, they just wanted to end the case and end it. And they're like, we know you fucking did it, so let's just send you to jail. But it's like, as now, I feel like that wouldn't have just happened because they would have been like, yeah, you confessed. You're definitely guilty. We know you did it, but you clearly are insane. Yeah. And, like, that... I feel like, even back then, like, I don't think mental illness and... You know, no, and people not. like, especially with drug addicts, like they're not given the same like freedom and Mm-mm. rights as like a normal person, which is sad.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I was reading in a couple articles, and they said that
1: because this town was like a vacation home, it was so small that poli- because they had a confession, they were very eager to just like, okay, okay, go to jail, like sweep it under the rug, like which okay. A it's lot done. of cases are like that. Yeah. Like so the they wanted to. Return police are fucking back to lazy sometimes. It. In this interview that he's giving to Newsday, he also tells another lie about how his um, how he was married to a woman named Geraldine and claimed her brother also helped with the murder. But this was all proven untrue. But in this interview, he also claimed that there was another gun involved in the crime scene.
0: See, his like State of reality is so, like, not there. Well, be
1: hold your houses.
0: Rick Asuna, who is an author who wrote the
1: book about the Amityville, he did an interview with Ronald DeFeo Jr. in 2000. And Ron told him that him, Don, and two other friends came up with a plan to kill their dad, who Ron also claimed in this interview that was that his dad was abusive, which we know to be true. He wanted to kill his mom, too, because they believed the mom enabled the dad's abusive behavior. And they would then drive their younger siblings, so after they executed the killings of the parents, they would then drive their younger siblings to safety and live happily ever after. Like, that's how, that's just how things work in this world. (laughs) Um, Dawn told her siblings... Who were in their bed. She was like, stay in bed, there's burglars in the house, and you should not move, don't make a sound, don't move no matter what you hear. Okay? So this is Ron telling in the interview to Rick Asuna that this is what Don told their siblings who were sleeping in their bed. Then Don, Ron, and one of their friends went to their parents' room. So there's three people who go to their parents' room. And Ron has the gun in his hand and he hesitates when killing his dad so don gets frustrated takes the hand out of the rifle out of his hands and just like shoots the dad and then ron snatches the gun back from his hand from don's hands and kills the mom the dad who didn't die but was injured rose from the bed and then ron shot him again for the second time this time killing him their mother who was like moaning and groaning in the corner The friend then takes out his revolver, shoots the mom, and then flees the scene. And Ron's like, Ron tells, Ron says in the interview, he's like, "Um, I ran after the friend and dragged him back to the house to clean up. Okay. And by the time they came back, Don apparently had gone into a frenzy and killed all the other three siblings.
0: And it's funny because, like, I'm sure her fingerprints are nowhere on those guns.
1: Yeah. And Ron, feeling grief and anger, overpowered Dawn, took the rifle from her and shot her in the back. But I guess there is some evidence that proves this somewhat right. Because in, in terms of how Dawn died... So Dawn is seemingly murdered somewhere else first and then placed in her bed after she was already dead. And the only reason they know that is because evidence points to her having a massive head wound and there was brain matter and blood all over her bed and mattress and nightgown, but there was no splatter on her headboard, which was like inches away from her head, which is crazy. That's an interesting detail. Yeah. So it's definitely like something is still fishy and so in 2010 a documentarian by the name of ryan Katzenbag compiles information for a six hour long trilogy called shattered hopes and he this is a um a video production where he discovers the truth in the evidence that a second weapon existed And so basically, in when when he's compiling all this information for this trilogy, he claims that the police sent him unredacted case files, which suggested that a 38 revolver was also involved in the crime scene. It's crazy. Like when I was reading this in the articles, I was wondering why the police would send him unredacted case files. And so he, basically it was an administrative error because he was also shocked that he got the unredacted case files too. But that basically kind of proved that there was another weapon possibly involved. And so an early ballistics report showed one bullet was different from the rest. Mm. Yeah. And then the police report filed the day after the murders states an officer overheard someone say that DeFeo was trying to get a silencer for a 38 revolver and DeFeo's friend under oath said few months before the murders he that a 38 revolver was in the drawer of DeFeo Jr.'s dresser
0: so what if there really was a friend and he had the silencer and he took them with him
1: maybe maybe and the file also indicated that DeFeo had disposed of evidence in pillowcases and placed one of them in a storm drain in Brooklyn, which he had later told police. So the police go and look for it, and they find it exactly where he described it to be. But inside was only a holster, but no handgun. would basically like suggested that another weapon was involved but disposed of somewhere else. So Katzenbeck is going through these these files that he's gotten from the police and he's looking at photos of the crime scene and he finds a picture of a trash can with a pillowcase inside of it. He does some fucking detective work and he finds the former location of the trash can and found that it was a few blocks from the DeFeo home and steps away from the Richmond Street dock. And so Katzenbach's theory is that Ron, potentially with an accomplice, had driven out to the waterfront with the 38 revolver wrapped in a pillowcase. He then tossed the gun into the water and threw the pillowcase in the trash, which is, which I mean, which is how the pillowcase got into the trash can and where he got back, where he. It basically like completes the circle. Katzenbach then hires a team of divers to search the area and they found the gun basically so he took the gu- he takes the gun that they find to the police they didn't think the gun was real and they kind of took it as a joke but they confiscated it anyways but smart ass fucking Katzenbag before they confiscated the gun he took pictures of it and he then starts showing it to experts and then so some experts start saying that it is most likely a 38 revolver manufactured before the murderers took place, meaning that it could be used in the murder. Doug Wickland is someone from the National Rifle Association that knows a lot about guns, and said this gun was most likely manufactured between 1890 and 1910, but based on erosion and what conditions the gun had been through, there could also be a gun that, got, get, like, that could get lost today and in 40 years would look like the same gun that they found in the dock. But marine biologist Ken Hayes also said that the gun's depth in the mud was consistent with objects sitting on the canal floor for 38 years, which is when the murders happened, 38 years ago, roughly mm. around that time.
0: That's wild. Yeah. But they po- were just like, all right, we got a confession, throw them in jail. They literally didn't even, like, try to find the fucking Basically, weapon. They didn't even try to do that back-end work whatsoever. These cops are lazy. Yeah, super lazy. They didn't take it seriously
1: at all because the case was bringing too much scrutiny to the small, like, quiet vacation town. And one, they already had the murder weapon, which was the thirty-five um, rifle. And a confession, and they were super eager to close
0: the case, so they never looked back. So even wait, the one that was found in the water was a different rifle. That was the other one that potentially he used.
1: Yeah, that was the potential second so weapon. So now
0: this affirms a theory that there might have been an accomplice. Yes.
1: But obviously it wasn't taken seriously because of the fact that they already had a confession. Yeah. But yeah, this happened, this Katzenbag stuff happened in 2010. It's
0: crazy. So super
1: recently. But it just kind of got left from there.
0: So we really don't even know what happened. No. A month after the murders happened in Amityville, the the house actually changed its address because it was catching a lot of media coverage, a lot of... And it was just tied to the murders. So the address was updated to 108 Ocean Boulevard instead of 112 Ocean Boulevard. And um, right after the murders happened, a month later, George and Kathy Lutz start looking for a home to move their family into. So they are both two different families. Kathy has three kids from a different marriage, and then George was the guy that she was in love with, and they wanted to move into their first home together. So they started looking at the Amityville house. They claimed that they had no idea about the history of the house until they came to check it out, and the real estate agent was like, just so you know, this is where the uh, DeFeo family murders happened and they said that they talked about it they discussed it with the family and they all were okay with living there because they weren't superstitious or weirded out by it they also got a fucking steal <laughs> for the house um, they purchased the house for eighty thousand dollars and it's like a huge house it's huge too. and it's in a nice area like it's in an expensive upper class mm-hmm. neighborhood but yeah, they got a, a crazy steal on this house, but they only lasted there for less than a month, 28 days to be exact. Once they found out that they were moving into that house, they obviously would talk about it with their friends, and their friends were like, "Hey, just because like of the history being so, you know, gruesome, just get it blessed by a priest, you know, mm-hmm. just just to be safe, protect the energy." So, Kathy and George are like, "All right, let's do it." So they hit up a priest and they're like, Hey, we just bought this house, we're gonna move in. Can you come bless the bless the house? So the priest comes in and the lets us stay outside. He walks the property, he walks the house, and he's just doing, you know, his prayers, doing the holy water shit, you know what they do. The priest walks upstairs, he walks into one of the rooms, it's gonna be their sewing room. But this used to be Mark and John DeFeo's bedroom, so the boys. The priest um, is doing his, you know, prayers, blessing that room, and he just feels a huge energy shift. It turns very dark, very, very heavy, and he hears an entity tell him to get out, and the priest is like, ooh, this is not good, this is not a good vibe. He leaves, he goes outside after doing the blessing, and he lets George know, he's like, hey you know, just finish the blessing, that room upstairs, I don't like that vibe, I don't think you guys should use that room, and George told him, I'm not going to use it as a bedroom, it's going to be a sewing room, and the priest is like, cool, great, don't let anyone sleep in there, bye, mm-hmm. <laughs> just dips, um, and after, super fucking vague too, <laughs> The they believe that after the blessing happened, the that's what triggered these spirits to get a little angrier, and Immediately, that's when like haunting started to happen inside the house, and it was all a very fast escalation. Um, I mean, like I said, they were only there for 28 days, so things started happening almost immediately. George claimed to wake up at 3 15 every night, which was the exact same time of the death of the DeFeo family murders, and uh, Kathy would have dreams about uh, the murders taking place and just the gruesome potential memories of what really happened in the home. They claimed that doors were being ripped from hinges. Cabinets would slam. Slime would ooze from the ceiling and would be found on the floors. It would be like this green, gross-looking slime. Uh, Black liquid would be found in toilets and coming down from keyholes. There would be flies swarming in the sewing room, which is always a sign of demonic entities just just so you know they would have increased tension within the family and negative spirits feed off of negative energy so when there's like fights happening you know things like that the spirit it gives the spirits more power and it gets them more intense and they claimed like they were having a lot more fights. The kids would have fights and then the parents would do beatings towards the kids. So it was just like a lot of negativity happening. The parents would constantly argue. And then there would be odors that would come and go. Just random odors. George claimed that he could never get warm. Like he would sit by the fireplace and get warm up his hands, warm up his body. But the minute he walked away, it would be instant cold. Like he just felt so cold. He could never warm himself up. Um, in every room or just like constantly?
1: Like constantly in, in the room? house. Oh, that's weird. So he
0: would go and sit by the fireplace and he'd feel warm there. But then the minute he walked away from the fireplace, he'd be freezing. That's crazy. They, uh, It wasn't very uncommon for them to have cold spots in the house either. Uh, especially the staircase. That was like a common spot for cold spots there. Kathy said that one time she woke up from a nap and she looked in the mirror and her face was of an old woman, an old hag, as she used. Um, And she said it lasted for hours. So every time she looked in the mirror, she would just see a reflection of an old woman looking back at her and it just freaked her out. I mean, can you imagine? No. I would be so so
1: terrified. I would have probably, like, fucking purchased a shit ton of wrinkle creams. And
0: <laughs> I'd be like, lie. but it's, like, crazy because then she would, you know, obviously look at, like, her family and just be like, can you do see this? And yeah. they wouldn't see it. So then, like, I would feel like I'm going insane. Or mm. I'd have crazy body dysmorphia or something. But, yeah, that would terrify me. George was constantly, constantly being lured out of the house. The door to the boat room kept opening in the middle of the night. And he would leave the house. And then one time when he he went out to go inspect, nothing was going on, closes the door and is walking back into the home. And he looks up and he sees an entity in his daughter's bedroom, Missy. And his daughter was five years old during this time. or oh Well, his stepdaughter. Um, so he saw an entity in her bedroom and he freaks out and he starts running up there. Nothing's there when he, you know, approaches the room and then goes to sleep. His daughter, Missy, also grew a liking for an imaginary friend and she refers to it as an angel, but I don't think so. I think that's fucking weird that like he saw something in Missy's room and then Missy has an imaginary friend. Suspicious. Yeah. And a lot of um, haunted homes, you know, stories and things like that, negative entities and ghosts will present themselves to children because they're more their veil is thinner so they're not as susceptible to being like oh that's bad for me let me block this out of my mind and everything because that's kind of like why adults don't see ghosts and interact with ghosts as much as kids do so it's very common for like ghosts to approach themselves towards children they're also more innocent and so they're easier to manipulate Mm. So his daughter Missy, she starts to grow with liking for her new imaginary friend named Jody, and she claims that Jody looked like a pig, and would sometimes appear normal size, but then sometimes would be increasingly larger than the house, like massive. And she also said that he could change shape and form however he wanted to and they would hang out they would talk and the parents were once upstairs in the upstairs bedroom and they were looking down outside the window and they saw two eyes staring back at them and Ew. Mi- yeah and missy told them that she thought it was Jody because Jody was wanting to come inside Can you imagine your daughter telling you something like that?
1: Fuck no. I'd be like, okay, honey, like, let's leave. We're moving.
0: Get the holy water. Fuck no, bitch. I'd be going so fast. (laughs) Uh, So the last night that they were in the house was when a lot of shit went down. And that was the absolute, you know, point when they were like, we can't do this anymore. And what transpired was that one night they were sleeping and at 3 15 in the morning as always uh of course demon hour george wakes up but he's paralyzed so he cannot move he can just only open his eyes and look and he can't he can't move his body at all he's hearing from the boy's bedroom the door the bed's slamming up and down on the floor And then he looks over at his wife, Kathy, and Kathy is levitating in the bed and she's floating. So, like, she levitates and then starts floating away from the bed. And then at that moment, he feels some entity, somebody, something sit on the bed next to him. And he is completely terrified. And he keeps, yeah, he keeps hearing the bed slamming in the boy's bedroom. And then he hears dragging sounds from the boy's bedroom. He kept also hearing pigeons in the vents so like pigeons flapping but some that but the next morning like when they inspected it there was no pigeon nest they never heard pigeons during the day nothing it was just at that time at night and then they because of all the hauntings that were happening they were also using like they were bringing their dog up into the master bedroom to sleep with them at night just to you know feel protected and that night their dog would not sleep all night and he was constantly puking
1: oh my god yeah
0: And then the next morning, they all wake up, and they're terrified. All the kids are freaking out. Uh, George is, like, super shaken up. And Kathy has no recollection of anything that happened, and neither does Missy. She was kind of like, what happened last night? (laughs) Oh, my God. And um, with- So the only person who remembers is George? And the boys. And the boys. They They were freaking out. But on- January 14th of 1976, the Lutzes fled the house and never looked back, um, but they still owned the house, you know, so they just got all their shit and left and went and stayed somewhere somewhere else, and they obviously invested money into this home, so they didn't want to give it up so easily, so after fleeing the home, they the jo- George and Kathy Lutz contacted Ed and Lorraine Warren with the help of um, a friend from Channel 5 News called Laura DiDio, And if you don't know who Ed and Lorraine Warren are, they are very famous um, ghost hunters or demonologists, if you say. Um, And Lorraine is a clairvoyant. So they're a duo. They're married. Or they were. So clairvoyants can
1: see, right?
0: No, they can feel. They can feel. Okay. RIP. They have both passed on, but they left such a big uh, legacy on Earth and they really like shifted the belief of, you know, hauntings being fake because they dedicated their whole life to investigating, you know, the paranormal and helping families that were, you know, being possessed or attached to an entity to release them. And um, a lot of times they did this for no money. So they, I think they used to have normal jobs. And then Ed met Lorraine. This is totally a sidebar, but Ed met Lorraine. And then they both felt like they met each other, like they were soulmates. Like she felt like it was like meant to be. And like them meeting each other was destined and their work together was like destined and stuff and that's cute that is so cute yeah and so when they met they were both fascinated by like little hauntings that were happening in the area so they would they would have like news clippings that they would find on the newspapers and then they would reach out to those people or go visit the house when they would see stuff about it and they would say hey like can we just like check it out can we investigate I think um Ed was like an artist like a a painter or a drawer so he would like They give them paintings in exchange for them to go investigate their house and then eventually they got like a lot of news coverage and media so then this became their full-time job and then they would just make money off of like the media coverage that they they would get
1: but i think isn't
0: that so cool that they just like dedicated their whole life to this and never like charged people for these things um so yeah, they get in contact with Ed and Lorraine Warren and the Warrens come to visit the house on February 24th, 1976. So a little over a month after the has uh, Lutz, moved out. And Lorraine described the vibe of the house as very overwhelming and it had a big sense of depression and sadness throughout the entire home. And when they were doing their walkthroughs, um, and they came upon the basement and they walked down into the basement. Ed said he felt a powerful, inhumane presence. And he described it as, you know, the feeling of, you know, standing underneath the waterfall. And that pressure was like driving him down to the floor energetically. Wow. Very intense. And at that point, he said that he knew this was. I just my- got chills. Dude. Yeah, that's crazy. At that point, he said that he knew this wasn't a ghost. He knew it wasn't a normal haunted house. This was definitely something very far sinister and powerful. So after they do their walkthrough, they're like, okay, this is something that's completely out of, you know, our, what's the right word? Like realm, depth depth it's like this is bigger than what we have never done Mm. we don't have the means to handle this on our own we need to have you know we need to invite more people in here so we can kind of investigate with other psychics so on march 6 1976 a group of investigators helped them put together their findings they kind of have this like group investigation slash seance in the home and there's so it's, a, it's just a bunch of psychics. And then there's the Channel 5 News team, which, you know, go to Lauren DeDio and her team there mm-hmm. to document the whole investigation. One of the psychics that was there, her name is Mary Pasquarella. And her psychic uh, gift is, is known as being a time walker. Which means that she can sense uh, and, at times, visualize past events that have happened in a certain specific location. Okay. She got ill during the seance and was like, I'm going to go rest. Okay, first of all, when I heard this, I was like, why the hell would you even think you should rest? <laughs> let alone go in on one of the bedrooms and rest. I'd be like, I'm going to go rest right here in front of you guys on the couch. No not let nothing touch me. Don't let anything come by me. But she decides to go upstairs Oh my And god. rest in one of the bedrooms and she's laying on the bed and she's reciting the Lord's prayer and she looks up and sees a group of entities in the doorway of the bedroom outside the bedroom but like at the doorway and they're reciting the same prayer but backwards. Oh my and god. And that is a sign of demonic or the occult. Then there's a Channel 5 cameraman named Steve Petropolis, who experienced heart palpitations and shortness of breath when he was on the stairs. And um, both George and the Warrens stated that the stairs were a cold spot in the house, constant cold spot. But Mary Pescarella also claims that when they were doing the seance, she saw a black shadow that formed a head and would move around the house. And Lorraine believed that the home itself was demonic. It's n- and she said it was not um, infested with humanly energy, but something far more intense and evil. And that she believed that the house could only be rid of this energy by having an exorcist or a Roman Catholic priest come in and do a cleansing. The Lutzes were a little reluctant to do that because they felt that they didn't want to put anyone else in harm's way and if it had this much of an energy they didn't want anyone to risk their life Mm. in cleansing the home so um after that investigation they decided not to move forward with the cleansing they sent they gave the house back to the bank and left and never came back and this was on august 30th 1976 But the rumors are that the home is built on an ancient burial ground and was once linked to a Satanist named John Ketchum. And the house had several different owners uh, within the last year itself. Uh, And it's constantly been off the market and then back on the market. Off the market, back on the market. and People really be buying these houses, like, thinking that...
1: Do you think, like, well, I don't know if you know, but, like, do you think that it's because of, like they are curious to know what a haunted house is like or they just have no fucking idea.
0: Maybe, but it also could just be that people are like, oh, it's a fucking hoax. I'm going to go buy the house. And that's probably why they buy it. And they're like, it's not a big deal, blah, blah. And then they'll be like, oh, wait, it's fucking haunted. Let me move (laughs) out. You know, I think that's honestly what I think people are doing. (laughs) Yeah. That would make a lot of sense. And plus with like so much history and it's been gone, you know, nowadays people don't even know what the Amityville murders and horror is, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So I feel like it's also that. Um, But the house was last sold in 2017 for $605,000. Very good deal still. Yeah. And they've also renovated the house, too. So it doesn't look like how it used to look before, at least the exterior. And I'm sure they updated the interior as well. But in 2005, one of the Lutz's kids named Christopher, he goes by Christopher Quarantino, had an interview with The Seattle Times. And he told The Seattle Times that a lot of the stuff that happened or that claimed to have happened was... Kind of exaggerated, so wow. let's 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 go back. Let's go backwards. So after so when the Lettses move in, there's a lot of they were not shy of going to the media and talking about the house and the hauntings, and they got a lot of coverage in the media because of that. They that's where like the book deal came from and the movie deal came from. And, you know, they would write the author of the Amityville Horror House, like they did interviews with him and he used like 45 hours of interviews with the Lutzes as, you know, his research for the for the book. And then um, obviously they were making money off of, you know, having their likability and their themselves being talked about on these books and these movies. So. When Christopher did the interview with the Seattle Times, he said a lot of it was hyped up by his stepfather, George, for the profit that he made through the books and the movies and things like that. But Christopher does claim that the paranormal stuff in the house is definitely like they're real hauntings that happen there. And he does think that there is that it is really haunted, but a lot of the crazy things like the doors being ripped from the hinges and the slime and shit. He says like a lot of that was just made up. (laughs) And he does remember that he had a figure approach him one night in the house. And he also remembers that um, one night his bedroom window, window kept banging open and shut. And he also claims that the book, the movie and the remake of the film, neither one of them accurately depict what really happened in the home.
1: Wow. So do we do we ever
0: like know what really happened besides like him telling us? Yeah, the hauntings are definitely not a hoax, but his stepfather brought them upon himself by dabbling with the occult, which amplified the paranormal incidents that actually happened and also kind of exaggerated them to make money from the exposure. So, wow. the real story, the real story from Christopher is that George the Lutz, George Lutz, <laughs> the Lutz. George Lutz. Um the real story is that George Lutz was very fascinated by the supernatural and the paranormal and the occult and, you know, was excited to purchase the house because of the history that he knew that happened in the home. Mm-hmm. And he referred to George as a professional showman, quote unquote. And they apparently never got along. They always had issues and they fought a lot, especially during the time, like, his mom was married to him, because he felt like he was constantly exploiting him and his family. And Which is fair. Which is fair. <laughs> yeah, and so he says that the the stepfather, George Lutz, would try to summon spirits in the house by having chantings and his own little, like, seances and things like that. Christopher in the interview talks about how he doesn't feel he felt like George was constantly pointing a finger at the home, being haunted and the home, having all this negative energy. But the real finger should be pointed at George himself because he instigated a lot of what really happened in the house so i'm sure like there was negative energy in the home i mean come on there's such a violent history there i'm mm. sure it is probably you know has some type of vibe in there but him by him summoning these spirits and him trying to communicate with them and interact with them obviously gave them power gave them more energy to become stronger and that's probably why like a lot of things escalated yeah you know when they moved in he triggered it for sure. he triggered it yeah and yeah, so he has a very bad relationship with George Lutz. Daniel Lutz, the younger son, or actually he was the older son. So George, or Christopher, the one that did the interview with the Seattle Times, was seven years old when they moved into the house. Daniel Lutz was 10 years old. He's the older brother. Okay. In 2013, <laughs> he started a documentary called My Amityville Horror, which was the one that we were going to watch Yeah, we didn't. Um, And he claimed that the hauntings were very much real as well. And that's in this documentary, he kind of just recounts his experience in the home and, you know, how it's literally haunted him ever since he moved out. Like he's never been able to get over it. And he confirms that George did play a role in the hauntings with dabbling in the occult. Um, But he also had more experiences than his brother. So he claims that he felt a spirit pass through him. And he said that he does remember having, like, bodily possession. So something took over his body at some point when they were living there. And he knows that. And he still claims that till this day. He also recalls furniture being moved around in the house. But it's just funny to say that, like, him and his brother both blame the stepfather for, yeah. for doing that. Um, and, like, I think George also... Or not George. Uh, Christopher also sued George Um, in the early 2000s because he was trying to um, do another movie deal, I think. And so he was suing him for um, fraud and like, you know, using like... Wow, good on him. Yeah. So they have a very bad relationship and obviously like um, Kathy and George got a divorce in 1988 I think or something like that um and so clearly like the relationship was very it wasn't stable yeah Missy Lutz um stayed out of the spotlight we don't know where she is we don't know what she's doing with her life and she like has never had like an interview with anyone or anything but that is the story of the Amityville house oh my god that is crazy. What do you guys think? Do you guys think it really happened? Where do you guys think the truth lies? I feel like there are some lies in here, but there are definitely some truths, you know? Yeah. And I do believe, like, the house is haunted, especially with so much energy trapped there. And even with, like, the entire, like, Lutz situation
1: where how, like, George specifically, like, fabricated a lot of it, like, he also had to have, there had to be de- a demonic presence there from the beginning in order for him to channel it in Absolutely. the first place.
0: Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think it's like you can also order open portals. Right. So. Oh, and then wasn't the portal like in the basement or something? Yeah. But when you were talking about your story about how what's his face created like this room in house to store his money. That's what I thought that was because I couldn't Um. find anyone else talking about there being like a satanic room. But when you said that, it makes Mm -hmm. sense. That's why there was a random room in the basement. But I do think that, uh. George was kind of dabbling in the occult and that could have triggered whatever spirits were already there to kind mm-hmm. of have more energy. So like the people that passed away in the home, but it also could have opened a portal to allow demonic entities to come through. And if you think about it, if it really is built on an um ancient burial ground, there already is like energy that's already in this area. Angry yeah or just Well I mean yeah it doesn't really matter because it's a burial site <laughs> yeah but it's like there's already so much energy so it makes sense why there are multiple different vibes in there you know it's not like one thing is haunting the whole family I mean the Mary Pascala saw like a group of entities there yeah. and sometimes if there's demons there they can also have a hold over the other entities that are in the house as well And it's weird to
1: think that, like, George, nothing really happened to George. Like, he was kind of just paralyzed in bed. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, his wife was levitating. Like, his daughter had a fucking imaginary friend. You know what I mean? Like, things, real things were happening to his family. But he was, like, just seeing it all happen.
0: Yeah. And, like... You know, if he's, like, the one conjuring up these spirits, it exactly. makes sense why they would leave him alone and attack mm-hmm. the other entities. And we really don't know. Like, he left all that shit out. So we really don't know what he was doing and what he really experienced yes. and what really was the truth either. So, Damn. Lots, lots for interpretation. Yes, lots of interpretation. But... Yeah, this was a fun one. It's a long one, um, but... This what was, are you salty about? I'm pretty salty about the fact that the father or the stepfather George Lutz exploited the family and used it for profit. Oh, there was also rumors that the family was in a lot of debt. So that oh. also was a reason why they might have made up some of the things for money. But yeah, it just sucks because, you know... That, like, he probably was just doing something that he didn't think was, like, gonna be a big deal. And it definitely altered the state of that that lot yeah. itself forever. And he brought, like,
1: children and his wife down with him. Yeah. Like, they're clearly affected by this till this day.
0: Yeah. What are you salty about?
1: I'm salty about the fact that he fabric... He, like, kind of the same thing you are. Be- um, How he allowed these beings or demonic presence to potentially haunt him and his family like not only did he put himself in danger but he put people he should have been
0: protecting right in danger yeah you know greed will do that to you right
1: (laughs) well fuck
0: well thank you guys so much for tuning in this week i hope you guys enjoyed this story uh, let us know what you guys think on Instagram at Pass Podcast, And uh, if you guys enjoyed this week's episode, leave us a rating and review so we know. And we have officially launched our TikTok. So follow us on
1: there for yeah. fun little videos and content. You guys will be able to see our faces for once, which
0: is <laughs> fun and exciting. And I think it'll help you guys feel closer to us. Yeah. Put a face to a name and a voice. Yeah. <laughs>
1: All, right, All right, guys. Well, thanks for listening. Bye.
0: Bye. Bye.